Resolve, to decide firmly on a course of action. What kind of resolve do you have to follow Christ? Is it lifelong or convenient? Passionate or dry? Casual or consistent? As we embark on a new year, let's look at our lives in the light of Scripture. Let's get back to the basics to live sold out for Jesus. Let's strive to live in God's grip. Well, as we make our way back from the uh, tundra of ice-strewn streets uh, and uh, look forward to a dusting of snow on Wednesday, y'all heard that, didn't you? Are y'all watching out for that? A dusting of snow. I'm by faith saying dusting. Amen? Because parents, I understand if you have your children in your house one more day, there's going to be some dangerous things happening. I understand. Day off tomorrow, and we want to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow and celebrate all that that great man led us to experience in our nation. We honor him. Uh, but uh, I know some of our parents are going to be like, can y'all go to the mall? Yeah, just walk. Just walk. Get there. Uh, but anyway, I, you know, snow days are great. Snow days are great the first day. Uh, it's that second, third, and fourth that gets a little, uh, gets a little tense. But a, as you have those snow days, I remember growing up and, and just uh, watching the snow fall out the window. What a delight that is. I mean, the, just watching the big flakes fall. And I remember when I was, I probably wasn't five or six years old, uh, and uh, just watching the snow fall, and I don't know how much uh, snow fell and landed in our yard, but uh, it was enough to cover my knee and all the way up to almost my hip, and, and it was awesome. Uh, my older brother, Brett, and I got all bundled up. We had our hats and our, and our gloves and our coats and our boots, and we had it all bundled up, and we went outside, and we ran in the snow, and we made snowmen. Uh, we made snow people. Snow people. It was snowmen. We made some snow women, probably a few snow children. But we, we had all kinds of snow villaging going on. It was awesome. And you know how you make those snow, uh, snow folk. You uh, uh, take a snowball and you roll it around, roll it around, roll it around, roll it around until you have a big bottom. You're not supposed to say that in church. You have a big bottom. And, and, then, and then you take another and you roll it around, roll it around, and have a medium-sized middle. And then you roll it around, roll it around, and you have a you have a small head, and you do little eyes, and have a little nose, and maybe a little mouth. You put a little, uh, put a little stick here, a little stick there. It's just a great time. That's a snow person. What fun is that? And it is, it is a blast to see the uh, drive through a neighborhood, and you see the little snow people in the yard, and and it's wonderful. And that lasts for as long as the weather is warm. And then the weather begins to warm up, and the snow people begin to melt, and it's forgotten. It's, it's a delight to build the snow people for a day, but the delight is quickly gone. Uh, even for children playing in the yard, they don't care so much about the snow people after the second day of snow. They don't care so much about the snow village after a season of the snow. It's, it's forgotten. And even if it's held in your memory over time, it is just that, a memory. It's a fondness. It's, it's a good time that took place, but not really something that changed your life. 
If it were warmer, we would talk about sandcastles at the beach. You know, it, you go down to the go down to the sand, and 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 you're you're there with your family, and and you 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 do whatever you're supposed to do to make sandcastles, and and you can make it as intricate as you want, but when the when the wind begins to blow and the tide comes in, or maybe the rain falls a little bit, the sandcastle's gone. And even though it was fun to make, even though it was even though it was a delight for the moment, it's, it's gone. And it might be a memory, it might be a good memory, but it's just that, a memory. My, my challenge, I believe, that God wants us to hear today from His Word is that we need to live for something more eternal than snow villages and sandcastles. Oh, we need to invest our life in something that will uh, last longer than uh, the cold snap, snapping. We, we need to give our lives to something more significant and meaningful than sandcastles and snow people. And that's exactly what Jesus did. If, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look, and, and, and uh, over the next several weeks, we started this series called Sold Out, and, and, and we're looking at how we must be sold out to God's purposes and how we can be sold out to God's purposes, how we give all that we are for all that God is. And, and so I want us to look at that. We're going to look at Luke chapters 2, 3, and 4, and we're going to look at the early life and early ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist, and we're going to get some clues about how we're supposed to live our lives. These, 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 uh, uh, these uh, stories that we'll look at will help shape us and, and direct us so that we live more than just for ourselves or for our wants, or for our feelings, or for our desires, or for our emotions, or for our plans, or for our dreams, or for our money. We'll live for something that's more significant than a snow castle or a sand castle, snow people or sand castle. My prayer is that we would learn today from Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2, and we are a bring-your-own-Bible kind of church, and even though uh, you can look at it on your screen, and that's fine. And uh, not that screen, because I don't do that because I'm, I'm mean like that. Uh, but you can look in your in your app on your phone or your tablet. You can look in the pages of of, of this book. Uh, there's a Bible in the in the pew in front of you. I encourage you to open your Bible uh, digitally or in real time, listening to the paper rustle. Um, and turn to Luke chapter 2, and, and as we look at the uh, only recorded um, um, passage of the history of the childhood of Jesus. We're, we're looking at the childhood of Jesus, and, and, and this is the only place where it talks about Jesus' childhood, and the only history, the only narrative we have about Jesus' childhood. And so we're going to learn lessons from Jesus uh, as a child. Uh, Luke chapter 2 Beginning in verse 40. Now, uh, the story has happened that Jesus has uh, been circumcised. He's, he's come to uh, Jerusalem with Mary and Joseph as a little baby, and he's been circumcised. Now, we pick up the story in verse 40. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. 
Now, that's the end of verse 40. The next verse, verse 41, is 12 years later. Okay, so there's a big skip between verse 40 and verse 41. It's between verse 40 and 41 that we know that Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt because uh, Herod wanted to kill all the children under two years of age. You find that in Matthew's gospel. Uh, But between chapter uh, 2, verse 40 and verse 41, we have uh, 12 years of Jesus' life. Now, verse 41, here's picking up the story. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed when they, being his parents, when they saw Jesus, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son... Why have you done this to us? Uh, just, just so you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty common thing, right, for uh, parents to do. Uh, when a child behaves badly and parents automatically think, well, you did that just to get at me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I remember when I was a kid and I would do stuff that my parents didn't like. It wasn't to get at them. But I guarantee you they felt that way sometimes. That's just free parenting advice. It's okay for you to say, why did you do this to me? It's okay. Mary did it. (laughs) So Mary freaked out and said, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus said to Mary and Joseph, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they didn't understand the statement which he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he was obedient to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I want us to lean into the first words that Jesus spoke. 12-year-old boy, he speaks up. Now, again, remember the scenario here. The the scene is that uh, every year, Mary and Joseph, along with a group from Nazareth, uh, it was a big group, they would make their way to Jerusalem. And the reason they did that is because the law told them to. The law that they followed as faithful Jews, they were to make three pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Uh, They were to make the uh, pilgrimage for the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And every faithful Jew would make at least one of those three feasts. And and apparently the Passover feast was the one that Mary and Joseph liked to go to the most. And so the crew in Nazareth, the traveling crew, they had a traveling agency and they got together and they decided that they would caravan from point A to point B, from Nazareth to Jerusalem. 
And so they got together. They combined all their resources, all their, all their uh, mules and, and, and all their, their family and all their, their tents, and they started making their way uh, to Jerusalem from Nazareth. And as they made their way, the children would start playing together and, and, and people would have fun together. And around the campfire at night when they would eat s'mores together, the children were off doing their thing. They'd come in, they'd eat the s'mores, and, and then they would get up the next morning and they'd make their way the rest of the way to Jerusalem. And so uh, coming back, it was the same thing, the same scenario. They, they got together, they stayed in the same place in Jerusalem as, as a group, and then they woke up that morning after the feast was done, and they said, Let's, it's time to go home. And so uh, all the kids are together, and all the parents are together, and they just start making their way back to Nazareth. Well, Mary and Joseph then, uh, uh, around lunchtime probably, whenever their child is supposed to be fed, they start thinking, well, where's Jesus? And they start looking around. Jesus isn't there. They had assumed that he was with the kids, but he wasn't with them. And so then they freak out. And you might imagine they'd freak out. If you've ever left your child at church um, and gone on home for dinner and, and, and didn't know where they were until lunchtime came around, if that's ever happened to you, not that that's ever happened in my house, but if that's ever happened to you, we have great sympathy for you um, because it's, it's a common thing. Well, I thought, uh, say to your wife, I thought you had Billy Bob. And, 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 and uh, your wife says, well, I thought you had Billy Bob. And, and, and guys, if you're ever in that situation and you're the father and, and your wife is the mother and, and you've left your child at church, and, and don't ever try to blame that on your wife. Let me just say, it's your fault. Own it. Just own it. Makes life a lot easier. And you say, well, that's not right. Yes, it is. Grow up. Anyway, all right, so as we, <laughs> that's what loving your wife, even as Christ loved the church, means. You own it. Uh, so uh, it, that Mary and Joseph freak out. They leave the caravan. The caravan keeps on going all the way back to Nazareth. They leave the caravan. They make their way back to Jerusalem. And uh, on the third day, so they leave Jerusalem for Nazareth, day one. They discover that Jesus isn't there, and they make their way back, day two. They get to Jerusalem on day three, and they're looking for Jesus, and they find him in the temple, sitting at the feet of, the, uh, of teachers of the law, listening to those teachers and asking them questions. Now, when they confront Jesus, Jesus responds with these words, the first red letters we have in the New Testament. Y'all get it? First red letters. Here we have it. Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I think in this one sentence, we get a clue to the entirety of Christ's life. I believe in this one sentence, we get insight into the very uh, foundation stone that directed his ambition, his motives, his mission, everything. He was about his father's business. And, and I believe that as we listen to Jesus and as we see that the priority of his life, the priority over every other circumstance, the priority over every other sport, the priority over every other ambition, the priority over every other relationship was God himself and what God wanted. That was what drove Jesus. And you and I, as followers of Christ, need to have that same kind of mindset. 
You and I, as followers of Christ, we need to be sold out to God's purpose. Sold out in such a way that we submit everything else in our life to what God wants. Until we get there, we're going to be dissatisfied in this life. I know that goes against everything that you hear and everything perhaps that you've learned. But until you submit everything, every relationship, every emotion, every desire, every drive, every pleasure, every ambition, every snow village and sandcastle, until you submit all of that, every single one, to God himself and his purpose, you will live a dissatisfied life. That's why so many followers of Jesus are dissatisfied. The reason we feel out of sync, the reason we feel out of sorts, the reason we feel discontented and disconnected is because perhaps we prioritize something above God and his purpose. Jesus teaches us today that if we're going to experience a life that is filled with satisfaction, by the way, do you know that Jesus lived the most satisfied life ever. And you do realize that when you become a Christian, you are saying, I am a follower of Jesus. What do followers of Jesus do? They follow Jesus. So what Jesus, the way Jesus lived, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means that you are sold out to living life the way Jesus lived. Am I right? And so the reason we do that is because we believe that 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 is the best life. There is nothing more important, more, more satisfying, more fulfilling than following in the steps of Jesus, of living life the way he lived. And so let's learn from Jesus and let's sell out to living life the way Jesus lived. And that was living in God's grip. Living in God's grip is more than just finding strength for difficult days. Living in God's grip is more than just finding comfort in our sadness. Living in God's grip is more than just uh, finding clarity in our confusion. Living in God's grip is living submitted to God. It is lashing our lives to God himself, his purpose, his plan, his design, and his desire. It's investing all that we are in God's purpose, not our purpose, God's purpose. It redirects how we live. It redirects how we, uh, uh, how, how we think. It redirects how we feel. It redirects our emotions, our relationships, and our work. It redirects everything. And when we begin to live our lives in God's grip the way Jesus did, he told his mom, Mom, I love you, but I love God more. You get that? And I know that's hard for us. But that's the way it's got to be for us. Jesus said it later in his life, in his earthly ministry. Um, he, he said a little bit harsher than that in Luke's gospel. He said, if anyone desires to come after me and does not hate his mother, brother, father, sister, he, cannot, he can't follow me. And he didn't literally mean you got to hate other people in order to follow me. What he was saying is you got to love me most of all. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be sold out. Not partial, not halfway, not, not I'll follow Jesus if it feels good. Jesus set the model for us. He said, I must 
be about my father's business. And he lived his life like that. From the moment of his gloriously miraculous birth to the moment of his sin-killing, guilt-stained death and his his majestic, powerful, earth-shattering, hell-shaking, death-defeating resurrection from beginning to end of that earthly encounter, Jesus was committed, sold out to live in God's grip to fulfill God's purposes. And you and I have to get on that same train. That's how we're supposed to live. We hear this in Jesus' life throughout Luke's gospel, and, and there's a, a verb that is used here in, in, uh, in, in uh, Luke 2.49. It's a, it's a verb that Luke uses throughout his gospel and in the book of Acts. He also wrote the, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Hey, this little verb, little three-letter verb, um, uh, is powerful in Luke's gospel because when Luke uses, as well as John and Matthew and Mark, when they use this word, it, it shows divine purpose. It shows a divine mandate. It shows a divine compulsion. Uh, we hear it uh, when, you remember when Jesus was going through Jericho in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is going through Jericho, and as he's walking along the street, he stops underneath a tree. It was a sycamore tree. And he stopped there, and he looked up, and there was a short guy named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus had not called out to Jesus. Zacchaeus didn't didn't make himself known. He didn't have a flag saying, hey, look at me. But Jesus stopped underneath that sycamore tree, and then he explained it. He said, Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree, for I must... There's that verb. I must stay at your house today. Why? So that he can change Zacchaeus' life, fulfill God's purpose. We hear it in in Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 43, when Jesus is talking to the people. Jesus has been performing all these miracles in this this region, and and he's getting ready to leave. And, And the people say, don't go. Don't go. Stay here. Keep doing the stuff for us. And, and, and Jesus heard what they said, but then he, he responded. He said, I must, there's that word, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities as well. Because for this purpose I have been sent. He understood that the reason he came was to fulfill God's purpose. The reason he lived was to fulfill God's purpose. The reason he he made decisions in the morning, what moved him throughout the day was not his feelings, not his emotions, not his desires, not even his physical or or emotional drives. What, What drove him was God's purpose. I must see you, Zacchaeus. I must go to other cities. We we hear it when he's explaining his mission to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. He said, the Son of Man must, there's that verb again, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus lived with that must dominating his life. Now, why did he live with that must? Not because he was trying to, uh, trying to make himself right with God. He was perfectly right with God. 
He lived with that must because he wanted to make sure that God smiled on him. He wanted to, as Matthew chapter 4 says, he wanted to fulfill all righteousness. There wasn't anything that he wanted to leave, leave undone that God wanted him to do. The must was, was, I've got to fulfill God's purpose. This is the most important thing in my life. What's the most important thing in your life? Better yet, ask someone you work with or someone you talk to every day. Ask them, what is the most important, what do you think is the most important thing in my life? So there was no doubt for Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, when we go to school, and we're hanging out with our friends at school, they need to know that God's purpose is more important than football, baseball, basketball, wrestling, boyfriend, girlfriend, track, recess. I don't know what y'all even do recess anymore, but any of that stuff. Do they know that? They'll know it if you're living it. You go to work. Do the people that work with you know that the most important thing to you is not the bottom line or your promotion or even your vacation. The most important thing to you is God's purposes. See, that's the way we're supposed to live. We need to live in such a way that people say, good night. That guy really is a fanatic for God. I mean, that's the way we're supposed to live. What's most important for you? As we give ourselves to live according to God's design for God's purposes, the good news is that we will begin to taste God's favor. When we live in God's grip, when we, when we sell out to his purpose, then we begin to taste God's favor. Now, God, uh, favor is a, is a word that we hear in verse 40 and verse 52. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 40, Jesus grew and became strong, uh, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Down in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What is that term, favor? And what is the favor of God? Well, put it simply and paint the picture um, when I was a boy, and even today, um, I wanted my dad's favor. The one thing that would fill my soul with encouragement and strength, that would make the sails of my soul fill up and cause me to soar, was when my daddy said, I'm so proud of you, son. Good job. Now, just so you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy that needs a lot of that. In fact, I don't need a bunch of people telling me good job. It makes me uncomfortable, and that's a, that's a totally different dysfunction that I carry in my life. But, um, 
but I, I don't need a lot of people saying good job. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't need five people to ever say to me good job, but I do need my dad, and I need my wife. Those are the two people that I look to. And when they put their affection on me and their attention on me and give their encouragement to me, it fills my, the sails of my soul with encouragement and strength, and I begin to soar. I didn't talk to Dad this week. He called and left a message, and I, I hadn't called him back yet, but, but I, I talked to him last week and, and last Sunday, in fact, and he said, he said, Eric, you're doing such a good job. I'm so proud of you. You know? So when we look at Jesus, the young boy, the 12-year-old, and we look at his life and, and we see that he had committed himself to his father's business, that he had sold out to live in God's grip, the long and short of it was that he was living and soaking and tasting God's favor. You see, as much as I need my wife or my father to, to uh, give me their favor, their favor cannot completely satisfy me. Their favor, their, 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 their attention, their affection, their words of encouragement, they, they cannot satisfy deeply the yearning of my soul. Only God can do that. And every person in this room, every heart that is human... Every person in this room made in the image of God desires, yearns, craves for our Heavenly Father to say, good job, son. Good job, daughter. I'm so very proud of you. As followers of Christ, that is what we desperately long to know. That is what we desperately yearn to experience. It is that favor of the living God. And, and we want to get hold of that favor. We want to soak in that favor. We want to be filled with that favor so that, so that as we live in the favor of the living God, we find our lives fulfilled. So how do we get hold of it? Two quick things that we see in this passage from Jesus. The first one is we need to embrace the discipline to grow. If you want to grow a garden, you don't go buy seeds, put them out in the backyard in their packages, go inside, get a two-liter uh, bottle of Diet Coke and some Cheetos, come outside and pour the two-liter bottle of Coke on that package of seeds and then sprinkle it with Cheetos and say, now grow. It won't, by the way. For that, for, for, for that seed to grow, it needs to be planted in the nutritious soil that is filled with nutrients that you care for. It needs to be watered and, and cared for and nurtured and nourished with the right stuff. But when you nurture and nourish it with the right stuff, it will grow and it will produce fruit. You and I have gathered here today, and so many of us are, are, are here, and we are pouring Cheetos and Diet Coke into our soul, and we need the pure milk of God's Word. We need more than the memes that we pick up off Instagram or Pinterest to feed our soul and cause us to grow. We need to open up the Word of God and let it soak into the very fiber of our being. Let it divide to the very core of our 
essence to show us what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is not, not according to what culture says, not according to what my friends think, not according to what I feel, but based upon the absolute truth of God's eternal word. We need to know. We need to know. And and growth comes when we allow God's word to soak in us. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. It's, it's what, what happens with Jesus that we see here in, 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 in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 40. Jesus was growing in wisdom. And, 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 and then in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom. Those are two verbs that mean to grow and, and to expand and to advance. In verse 46, we see that Jesus was growing in a specific way, so much so that he would go to the temple and he sat as a 12-year-old boy, even before his bar mitzvah, and he sat at the feet of these teachers of the law and he was listening. That means he was hearing. That means he was learning from these teachers of the law and he was asking them questions that astounded them because of the depth of, their, of his understanding. Jesus was a learner. And we need to be that kind of learner of God's word. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says that that God's word, the scripture, has been given to us for our learning. So that through the patience of scripture and through the teaching and and, and the growth that scripture provides, we might have hope in this life. Guys, if you are not embracing this discipline of growth, which includes opening up God's word, which includes gathering together with God's people, which includes being part of a small group like Jesus was there at the temple sitting with other uh, uh, learners and, and, and asking questions together and, and holding each other accountable and living life together. That's the kind of stuff that needs to feed our soul so that we can live daily in God's grip, sold out to his purpose and experience and taste his favor. You got to spend time in God's word. Don't wait on me to spend on time in God's word and share it with you. No, friends, you spend time in God's word. Open up the scripture and let God speak. So when God's word begins to speak, then it begins to adjust our lives. So embrace the discipline of growth, which leads to the second thing that we find in this passage is that we find our strength in life soaked in wisdom. We find strength for living when we are soaked up in wisdom. Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, Luke 2.40. Jesus, verse 52, increased in wisdom. Now, what is this wisdom? Wisdom is not that Jesus could pick up an algebraic book, algebra, algebra, algebra two, and and, and fill it out from front to back. I'm sure he could, but that's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is not where he could take a history book and delineate the timeline between the Hellenistic period and the Roman period and give you all the emperors and rulers in between. That, that, I'm sure he could do that, but that's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is not being able to look at the stars and map the constellations and name them one by one. He made them. I'm sure he could name them, but that's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is not being able to intricately describe 
described the different philosophies that had dominated the cultural landscape of, of our lives and our world uh, from time immemorial. Jesus could do it, but that's not wisdom. Wisdom is not where Jesus could delineate the different theologies that began to shape uh, the first century Judea. I know Jesus could do it, but that's not wisdom. Wisdom is where we take the word of God and let it shape our lives so that we fit the will of God. That's wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 9. In Psalm chapter 111, we hear this phrase. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, the initiation, the fault uh, from which wisdom flows. Fear of the Lord, that's where we get wisdom. That's what dominated Christ's life. That's what drove him. That's what directed his mind, his thoughts, his affections, his desires. It was the fear of the Lord. And what is this fear of the Lord? It's where we adjust everything that we are, every relationship, every emotion, every will, every intent. We adjust everything that we are to what God wants as revealed in his word. You want to grow. You want to you soak in wisdom. You want to have strength for today and hope for tomorrow. You want to have clarity for your life. You want to understand more. You want to, you, you want to find God's favor settling down around you. You want to be filled with satisfaction. Then friends, get wisdom. And wisdom is simply understanding what God says and doing it. Living it as though your life depended on it. Your soul will shrink no matter how religious you are when you ignore the doing of God's word. Your soul will soar. As you soak in the favor of God, when you hear God's word and you do it. My prayer is that we would stop building sandcastles and snow people. And we would start living our life with an eternal purpose. We give ourselves for God's glory heart, mind, and soul. Would you bow your heads, please? I guess the question that we all need to ask today is what do we need to reprioritize? See, there, there are some things that maybe as God began to speak to you through his word, maybe there are things that he has revealed that you have held up as more important than God's business, than God's purpose, than God's mission. See, there is nothing more important and today, maybe you're battling that, that tension of priorities. And today, the Spirit of God began to speak to you and reveal to you through his word, through the life of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, began to reveal to you that you have been pursuing something as a priority, but it's not God's purpose. So maybe today what you need to do is you just need to lay that down. You need to let that go. You need to come to this altar and you need to lay it before the Lord. And, and guys, there, there's no shame in recognizing that you've got those things. We all have them. The shame happens when we recognize that we've got them and then we hold on to them still. 
Here's what God is doing in your life today, right now. He's revealing to you that there is a way to life, and you need to adjust to fit it. And the way to life is through prioritizing God's purposes above your own. So my prayer for you, as it is for me and for my family, my prayer is that we would see what God's purpose is. Revealed in his word, it's clear. And that we would make secondary everything other than his purpose. And whatever those things are that we're holding in higher esteem in our life than God's purpose, I pray that we would lay it down, lay it on the altar, and leave it there. So now, Father, as we have gathered together in this place for your glory, as we have sought to hear from you and as you've spoken to us through your word, I pray that you would sharpen our focus even now, that that we would cry out to you, not as those who have all the answers, but as those who are in need of your help, that we would look to you and we would find the strength to lay down those idols that we have held in higher esteem than you and your purposes, that we would lay aside those, those um, desires and ambitions that have driven us and, and we would push those to the side and we would pursue with greater priority and the greatest priority your purpose, your desire. Let that make the decisions in our life. So God, I pray that you would draw us to this altar as we cry out to you, that we would would find the solace and the comfort and the grace that you have provided all those who seek you honestly and openly. As we cry out to you in this place, God, I pray that we would feel and sense and soak in your favor as we are obedient to you and to your word revealed to us. Now, move us in this place for your glory's sake. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.